Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 505. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Anne-Elisabeth Nuté. Anne-Elisabeth is a French journalist who has worked with some of the most prestigious titles, including VSD, François, Sunday Times, The Sunday Telegraph, and Elle. Today, Anne-Elisabeth Nuté is a regular commentator on television, including on the BBC, Arte, France 24, C'est dans l'air, and many others. And she's also a columnist for The Telegraph, Unheard, New York Post, CapEx, and TWS, amongst others. In this conversation with Andy Elizabeth, we discuss her career as a journalist, the evolutions and the state of journalism today, freedom of speech, her preferred sources and outlets, and how to manage one's public online profile, for example, on social media, in light of today's divisive environment. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please, if you have a moment, go ahead and drop in a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Anna Elisabeth Moutet, how wonderful to have you on my show. You are friends with my wife, and I got to meet you. I've been following your career. As you know, I've always been interested in the role of journalists in society. I've been observing keenly the sprouting of new media channels like Unheard and GB News. And you, who are really part of that movement, I was really keen to have you on the show. So let's start with Anne-Elisabeth, who are you? Good Lord. Uh, I'm uh, French. Uh, I went to school in France and in Britain. Uh, I actually have worked all my life for all media um, and um, uh, several in France and in the UK, uh, mostly uh, the Sunday Times and then uh, the, the Telegraph, the first time and others in, uh, in between. And now I work for The Telegraph again, which is pretty much all media, but I also uh, do stuff for Unheard and GB News, whom you quoted. And I, I don't think there's really a difference between all the new media. You have media that you know, essentially sort of establish themselves and media that fall by the wayside. And uh, as the economics of uh, press and everything basically has become very hazardous, I would say that um, it would be nice to think that the good ones survive and the bad ones disappear, but that's not the way it works. Yes, I I, I wonder about the state of journalism uh, on on in general, and to what extent uh, with the online model, and I would call I've called it the murderizing of of media, where there needs to be a parti pris, a a certain line of editorial thought in the way that they print it or publish it in order to get people attracted to the information. So how do you how do you describe the transition that's happened over the last 20 years in terms of what's happened to media itself? I think, uh, first of all, I think you're talking about two different things. New media, and especially the internet and the fact that people expect to get stuff for free on the internet and that unlike radio, they find it very difficult to monetize it. That is one thing, and it's 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 really it's a big change, uh, and not everybody adapts well. Uh, what you call modernization has always existed, uh, and honestly, if you look at the headlines of newspapers a hundred years ago, I was about to say a thousand years, I don't think so, but in a hundred years ago, certainly you will find headlines that are very sensationalist. If you look at the French press, which is now incredibly sort of staid and 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 sort of timid for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, it was much more vibrant and much more amusing and much more, you know, uh, big headlines in 78 point and 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 uh, um, uh, sort of, you know, scandals and, and drawings when they didn't have pictures. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to refer you to uh, Le, Le, it's Le Figaro and Le Figaro, no, it's, it's Laurent and Laurent has this headline that takes the entire front page like the sun and it says, J'accuse by one Emile Zola. And believe me, saying that the 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 decided you know the culprit would already be condemned by a military court uh, is actually Captain Dreyfus is actually innocent. It's sort of it's as sensational as it gets, and it's also what newspapers are about. 
And so uh, I, you know, I don't think Murdoch invented so many things as refined them, but also um, I've actually, you know, the thing that you forget about Rupert Murdoch is he is a real newspaper man. Uh, he likes newspapers. He loves newspapers. When he split his empire because the paper empire was not the thing that has the Times and the Sun and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post and some others. Uh, that is far less profitable than the digital outfit, plus, you know, television, Fox News, 20th Century Fox, all sorts of things. And he split it and he kept for himself the newspapers because that's what he likes. Um, and you can say all sorts of things about the murder press, but it's independent, it's vibrant, people read it. And I, I, I would tend, and the Times is a good newspaper, the Wall Street Journal really got rejuvenated under Murdoch. And as long as you do, as the Wall Street Journal is a good example of, uh, you separate opinion and reporting, you are absolutely fine. And if you take the Wall Street Journal, they used to be a bit boring, very good reporting. The very good reporting is still there. And then you've got a very lively opinion page. And I know that within the paper, the up-end people and the um, uh, the reporting people don't always see eye to eye. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it, it, it usually we used to say when I started, you know, a long time ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth, that it was a creative, um, you know, basically creative conflict, uh, which 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 editors actually liked and welcomed. I've worked for, uh, you know, the Sunday Times that was a had just become a Murdoch paper, uh, and um, it was a nice bunch of professionals doing their job extremely well. So um, I, you know, what people call Murdochization, they think of the sun. Uh, the Sun and the news of the world. I mean, they really lost big on the on the hacking scandal. So, I mean, I'm entirely in favor of regulating. And actually, I don't think you know it, what they did. List hacking people's phone, uh, e uh, mobile phone boxes. It was really it was not technical. It was just sort of you know they got the the pin and they would ring up to listen to the messages. It, it is sort of extremely low tech. But it is illegal. It would have been illegal without a regulator. It would have, it, it, you know, it was just just use the laws that exist on, 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 in the books. And usually most of the time it's enough to regulate something. You don't need to make up new ones. Um, and in terms of also you know, the ethics, everybody knows what's right and what's wrong. I don't think it's such a difficult thing and you just have to stick to it. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm sort of less worried about this. I'm more worried about uh, what is happening. I mean, in Britain, people still like newspapers and the websites have sort of ruthlessly uh, clawed their way into the digital age um, uh, so that they are read and they actually make money. A uh, great example, and you can say that this is a monster paper, um, possibly more than the, the, the Murdoch Press, but is the Daily Mail, which is the richest website press website in the world, I think. Uh, I don't know, but 160 million people per day, but I might be wrong. Uh, I mean, it is read all over the world. It's it's separate from the paper in that it, it uses the massive mix of news production from the paper to make something that is stridently celebrity and showbiz oriented because they need the money to pay the reporters and more than that to pay the reporting. And on the other hand, you've got all the pieces and the editorials and, and sometimes the campaigning that the mail is very good for. And I, I'll remind you of the way the mail tirelessly campaigned for several years to get justice for the assassins of Stephen Lawrence, who was a young black boy who was killed by the British police and the British police tried to cover it up. And the mail fought on this until they got it. And one of the ways to have good reporting, but also to have good campaigning journalism, is to have many because you can have opinion. Opinion is the cheapest thing in terms of production. Uh, write me a piece about whether you like Madame Hidalgo or the mayor of Paris, and you know I'll sit down, I'll sort of check the facts I know and bring up a few people. And three hours later, you'll have a column that is very opinionated because it's, it's very easy. Facts are expensive. Sending people out to report, uh, you know, giving them the time, paying them a salary, paying their insurance, plane tickets, hotel room, fixer, car, satellite phone, you name it, uh, and staying with the story and take the war in Ukraine. You know, it's almost it's almost a year and it is costly. And without good reporting, you get nothing. And that is when you're very poor. And, you know, if, you know, Kim Kardashian pays for people for the mail having actually three people in Ukraine right now, you know, long live Kim Kardashian. 
Well, lots of great things in there, Anisabeth. So traditionally, we talk uh, in, in journalism about the separation between publisher and editor. What was interesting about you is that you start by talking about the, the wall between, or at least the differentiation between opinion and reporting. There, there seems to me there's another one, which is in between reporting and investigation. Because there's a, you can just do straight reporting, but investigation for deeper projects, requiring more people, longer timelines, you don't necessarily have immediately a piece that you can publish, right? So you can't make any money off of that. What do you, I mean, do, do you not feel that with the arrival of the internet, the, the gap, should we say, between publisher and editor had to be, or in any event has been, shrunk? Well, it depends what you mean by publisher. And are you talking about the publisher? Or are you talking about the owner, which is not the same thing? Right. Well, the person who is responsible for making money out of the news, I should say, that's how I call the publisher. The person who's looking to get advertising, looking for uh, clicks on their page, as opposed to the journalist who is merely responsible for delivering the, the correct report. Well... I, you know, it's very, it's very high-minded to say, oh, you know, I do not concern myself with many. And when I started off as a baby reporter, I heard plenty of extremely um, uh, uh, sort of, you know, those, those pretty self-satisfied grand old men, because they were mostly men, of journalism. And they said, I'm not interested in this. Uh, uh, and, and it is not my concern. And, you know, honestly, you've got to know the ecosystem within which you work and the limits. And the question is, you know, is your owner and your publisher, uh, you know, are they in agreement to begin with? Will the publisher say, look, it's going to cost us, but that's our reputation. And the owner will say, go for it, because they're talking about many here. And as we, I think, I don't think there's a difference between sort of you know, news writing and, and, and uh, you said reporting and investigation. Reporting and investigation is basically the same thing, and it's a question of intensity and time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, news writing, I mean, you know, news writing. Some of it is you just there are news that you have to report, and it's got to be there. And 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 you know, news about business, which is not always about bankruptcies and 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 scandals. And news about all sorts of things, and most of the news about movies and showbiz are basically uh, a sort of extended arm of the publicity department of the of the movie studios when it's a studio. But you know, and you've got to mix all of this because some of it people just want to know about it, and you don't you don't necessarily need to be sort of all the time sort of barking at people and saying you've done something wrong. I'll find out about it. Uh, and usually, when a movie is bad, you see it on the screen. When a movie destroys a, a, a studio, as you know, to take one example, uh, um, uh, um, Heaven's Gate, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate destroyed United Artists forty years ago. Uh, uh, that is really interesting, and and that requires and and, and really it makes for fascinating investigations on on how you get a perfect storm of the wrong decisions. And this is something that you can apply to movies, you can apply it to wars, uh, you can apply it to many things. And it's all interesting, but I don't think it's separate. I think it's part of the same ecosystem that you're quite right to say the real question is, you know, do we want to spend money on this? And you have people who've got principles and they're quite right to have principles, but uh, there's also a sort of, okay, how many, you know, how many uh, uh, concurrent investigations can I afford? And how many readers are going to be interested and at what stage do I decide that this is the public interest and I'll go for it? And how can I sustain uh, uh, my public interest mission by, you know, remaining afloat? And, and I, frankly, I mean, that's that's something that you do as you as you run a company. It is a company. I would not give it to the state for all sorts of reasons, because the state influences things. Uh, so these decisions, are, I mean, they're difficult decisions. Uh, Every paper, one stage or another, does it, and, and some do it less. Uh, but it's not, um, you know, if you take the sun, uh, the sun, which, you know, you wouldn't call one of the great investigative uh, newspapers of history, but they were very good. It was one of their bugbears, but why not? I mean, they're very, they were very good on the grooming gangs of the north of England that nobody wanted to touch. 
because they were they were part of minority communities and people said don't stigmatize. And meanwhile, you know, girls were being groomed, gang raped, etc. And so, very obviously, they were. Uh, the, the, some other papers were held by that. And certainly the BBC was held back by that because they felt, no, we don't want to sort of commit a great evil, which is to uh, finger an entire community. Uh, I would say that, you know, at least one half of the community was not involved because they were women. And, uh, you know, then again, it's it's always a small minority and you've got to be grown up enough. But you need to have people who do that wherever the paper is. Uh, I... It, you know, it's it's not something on which you have principles apart from saying, look, this is nobody's interested. Keep it under your arm or find something else. There are conflicts. There are times where you go to the editor and the editor says, look, no, it's Yonsville. People won't read it. Well, you know, let's leave it there. What's unpleasant, but I've not encountered this so much in England as I have in France, is when they say, no, we're not interested in the story, and that actually means I know that person, I do not want to be enemies with that person. Uh, I know this politician, I do not want to be enemies with that politician. Yet they will not like us doing this. And honestly, they can do us a great deal of harm. All these things exist, um, and I don't think you can do this to English newspapers, partly because they, there's a tradition of independence and partly because uh, they are rich enough to say stuff you to the people who try to do this by by monitoring means. There are many ways of making trouble for a newspaper or, or a television station. Um, in France, there's a completely different tradition of respect for uh, the established order and the media are very, very poor. They went into the internet <laughs> era without the massive, you know, deep pockets that the British media had. And that's another massive problem. Everybody has suffered from the internet, but the French went poor because they never had the, the uh, what used to be new tech, and it's very old tech now, the new tech uh, revolution of the late 70s and early 80s, uh, where you had a K. Graham and the Washington Post who sort of you know, fought through a strike, I think it was 1977, uh, and, and, and eventually got the Washington Post to be produced on modern uh, printing machines and offset, and you know, with photo composition, I'm forgetting the name, but basically, you know, it was no longer lead. You you typed this, and it went on a film at that time. It was not yet computers, and it produced the pages, and it needed far fewer people. And there was massive pushback from the unions, the printers' unions. Printers' unions, the world over, are the most combative because when when they were created uh, in in the 19th century, uh, they were the only people who could read. So the more you can read and the more, you know, the more arguments you find to fight, which is why the printers unions have always been hard, uh, you know, the, uh, hard work. In Britain, very famously, you had a man called Eddie Sharp, who decided to create a daily newspaper called Today, I think this is 1983, and, and to do it with a new tech. And he fought the unions bravely. And eventually, mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch said, bought Today and incorporated today to uh, the uh, News International, uh, which was uh, on News Limited at the time, which was the, uh, the Murdoch Press. And Murdoch knew exactly what he wanted. And, and I, 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 I had arrived there, so I remember that time very well. Hmm. And he essentially built an entire new uh, production and, and uh, editorial office in Wapping next to the Tower of London in former industrial district. And uh, what he did was to have a ready to operate, you know, family of newspapers, the Times, the Sun, the News of the World, others. And uh, one day in 1980, I'm trying to remember whether it was 85 or 86, uh, we were given, I was at that time at the Sunday Times, and they were given cardboard boxes. And they said, put your stuff there and you'll find them Tuesday morning. You work When you work on a Sunday paper, you work Saturday. Late into the night, you don't work on Monday. Uh, so Tuesday morning, our stuff was at the factory and at Wapping, we had those wonderful badges. I still have mine somewhere to get into mm. Wapping. And for two years, we crossed picket lines. And I, I come from a left-wing family. I don't sound it most of the time, but you know, you were not supposed to cross a picket line, but essentially the printers were brutal. They had cost a fortune to various owners of, of the of news, you know, what was not yet news international. They had they would, you know, you would you would touch by mistake, you would be stumbling, looking at a page in lead. If your finger went on the table, the entire paper was stopped. 
the they I mean they went on strike for all sorts of things and the people have forgotten the way they were. That was a close shot, obviously. Uh, they were uh, they I mean they were they, they essentially were the planning to run the papers into the ground. So when when we were given our stuff and said yeah, we're moving to Wapping, um, uh, I thought that was a brilliant idea. I don't think Rupert Murdoch could have done that with and been at, he was ready to fight. He had public support because that was at the height of Margaret Thatcher's popularity. And it was quite honestly something that was necessary. French newspapers had only one press lord who wanted to do this. He was called um, um, Amaury. Uh, I'm trying to think he was Francis Amaury. I'm not entirely sure, Robert Amaury. But anyway, he owned the Le Parisien and L'Equipe group. And that was important because L'Equipe is a a sports daily, it is the sports daily in France. It has fed Le Parisien uh, because it's an, it's massively, you know, people love L'Equipe, they buy L'Equipe, they want to read uh, the rundown of the matches on L'Equipe. And, and uh, L'Equipe is important enough that the Tour de France is operated by L'Equipe. So we're, we're talking about a large company. The Tour de France is also a commercial operation, a very successful one. So uh, Amaury decided that, no, he would fight the unions. And the unions, same thing as in England, they were outside the offices of the paper. They were throwing bricks at it. Uh, it was dangerous. It was difficult. And then Amaury, one morning, did what he did every morning and went and saddled his horse at 7 a.m. to have a half-hour ride before he went to the office. And he fell from the horse. And it has been estimated that that horse has essentially killed off the modernization of the French press because nobody else had the guts to do what Amaury was doing. Uh, I've heard conspiracy theories that, you know, somebody nobbled the house. I have no clue about this. It certainly was helpful. And they certainly, the, 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 the press unions were certainly, and I wouldn't say this of many people, some of the, I mean, the press unions were certainly nasty enough to have thought about it, possibly not wanting to kill. I do not know. They, it, the likelihood, because there would have been a police investigation, is that it did not happen, but it was not something that seemed outlandish. At that time, it was very, very, very bitter with packages of newspaper being burnt in the streets and people being being uh, a sort of roughed up in front of the officers if they wanted to cross the picket lines. So we lost that in France. That was in 1975. Nobody else did it. There was, as always is the case in France, years of long negotiations between the unions and whatever and sort of gifts of many. And the guy who was in charge was a deeply unpleasant man from the Robert Hersan press at the time, they owned François and Le Figaro. And um, there were, and essentially they paid off the unions and they, uh, there was a sort of low descent into unprofitability because the, the, it was not just the, um, the cost of employment, but it was also all the guarantees and, and all the perks that went with them. And the fact that you had the stop heavy thing in which you had you know, a small group of, of reporters and you have a huge production arm that was completely unproduct unproductive. And, and that was that was what happened is most media in France, mostly also because the, the government, which has always an opinion on any kind of sensitive um, enterprise in, in France, even though we're not, uh, we're not a Soviet country, but the, the whole influence was, we do not want to have the kind of crisis that people will notice and it won't be good for us in the polls. And a very, in a sort of very sort of complicated, but sort of heavy handed way. Uh, so it, it makes for very different things, but um, again, you know, it, lots of things go hand in hand. Anyway, the French press, expensively produced by old fashioned people who never moved, it's, it's, it, there was no mobility within the French press, uh, went into the internet era and the internet era ate it up because they had no pockets, you know, no deep pockets, no shadow pockets, no pockets at all. Uh, the, the, the Brits are sort of, you know, finding their way out of this. If I look at the American press, most of America now is about towns that have a one, a one newspaper town, one newspaper town in America, in, in you know, all, all the you know, states and provinces and everything. That is, that is the end of everything, because if you have no competition, then... That's the sort of reasoning where you end up having an AI producing text because what you want is essentially uh, a, a you know uh, a, a, a parish bulletin and no, no longer a newspaper. There are have you know there are nice exceptions, but uh, I would say that America America in 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 the wide swathe of the country is very badly served. And then you've got what happens in the coasts and in the big media that we talk about which is that in the past 
you know, five, 10 years, we've had this offensive of such political correctness that uh, not only not only are there things that you can't write or can't talk about, but the people who said things that you can dispute about get themselves fired because there's a kind of referendum within there's a kind of referendum between uh, 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 you know, the younger members of staff and they go to their craven bosses and they say, so-and-so is making us feel unsafe, fire them, and so-and-so gets fired. So I, the American press is also killed from the inside uh, by the rule of a bunch of little political commissars with um, Slack channels. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Well, there was a lot in that, Anne-Elisabeth. Um, I feel like I want to circle back to uh, just a little bit more broadly, because, uh, I mean, generally speaking, I uh, would would add to the French situation a little bit in opposition to the American when you just mentioned this, the notion that everything is centralized in Paris. And so the, the location of l'Elysée and the different media, uh, it's just a little cab ride away and people chat and, and exchange. And the other thing which I thought about France is that there's a cultural idea uh, that may no longer be as um, protected, but you don't talk about private lives. You know, who you're screwing isn't as, as relevant. Um, whereas in England, that's sort of open field uh, material. They, there's, I, was, I remember when I worked at L'Oréal, we don't talk about sex, we don't talk about money, and we don't talk about privilege. These are things which are sort of better to keep secret than out there. But going to the the notion of papers today, to what extent do you think it's important that a paper you know, sets out its purpose? What is the purpose of this magazine? Does raison d'être? beyond the raison d'être of journalism, but should papers have their own particular purpose and something that they then can put on their magazine or a newspaper or a television to say, this is why we exist? There's a long tradition. I mean, you know, uh, 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 you know that if you've got, you're lucky enough to live in a place where there are several newspapers, you know perfectly well that there's a different tone you know, you've got the upscale ones, you've got the populist uh, or popular ones, you've got a left wing, right wing uh, uh, above the fray. I mean, that is, you know, I have no, I have no problem with this. And I, I think it's sort of something that is understood by the readers and it's understood by the, by, by the staff. I don't think there's a, uh, this is either new or a problem. Uh, in terms of being a militant paper, you have some of those. Uh, uh, you know, L'Humanité, the newspaper, uh, which was a socialist paper and then sort of uh, um, uh, uh, taken hold of by the brand new French Communist Party in the 1920s. You know, we knew perfectly well, everybody knows perfectly well what you need to find in it, which doesn't mean that the paper doesn't have good stuff in it. Um, uh, if, you know, if the only, if, if your paper is meant to be only something that defends an idea, it becomes extremely boring or sort of self-referential very fast. The other thing is you can you, you launch a paper and you say we want to have you know good newspaper, bring more news, make it more vivid, more relevant. I mean you every 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 sort of spin doctor dream word and they have a, a word salad and that goes into the press release. But what really happens with media is when they, especially when they become good is there's a kind of accretion of personalities and, and ideas and way of working and openness to new ideas. And the personality of the new media sort of emerges from it. And, and then it's as if it had not never, never not existed, but also that personality is perfectly well understood by both the readers and, and, and the staff. And that usually makes for very happy outfits. It's not just newspapers, magazines as well, et cetera. And I want, I want to get back to that. That is hollow before that. You know, 
you the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. Love it. I, I want to push back though, Anne Elizabeth, because whereas in the past, if you had the London Times and it was London readers reading London newspapers about London events, essentially, of course, international, the Londoners knew. Now everything is global. And and we there's this notion of source checking that is we, we don't have as much money for journalists to, to fa fact check and all this. And then anyone can pick a, a link of the Daily Mail living in Indonesia or Australia or so on. And they don't have quite the same knowledge of the biases of each paper, each source that they're clicking on, because there are so many out there. It's hard to keep them all as a reader uh, clear in the mind. I, you know, I mean, this may sound weird, but fact-checking existed before the internet. And Naturally, I hope so. <laughs> so. So this is not new. And um, it is very true that usually, you know, you, it's easier to correct things now because you write, you, you put a correction on the website and, and, and the actual paper uh, paper is still driving most ads, but it is, you know, it's, it's, you know, it goes away and wraps fish uh, or lights up a fire in a house where they don't want to uh, pay electricity bills or something. But um, it's it's not so much. I mean, I don't see where it is. It's a different problem, I think. And in terms of the, we're talking about two different things, uh, good reporting, good fact checking. I certainly remember a time when you were looser about explaining things and more romantic in some ways, and that's not a that's not a, a, a fault actually. In looking at a situation and giving a general impression, you it is very easy nowadays to get all your facts and your your, your, your figures, and you, you just go on Google and and. There are, you know, actually, it's not that simple. But if you're trained to do it, you know where you're getting it from, which body you can you can trust. You have, uh, and that works for fake news as well as you 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 know what media you can trust from experience, and you know when they how they work, and therefore you will take their stuff and how they see their own reputation, which is probably the best thing. It's a bit like being a ratings agency, you know, and you decide who's going to sort of what fact you think. Okay, I can trust this, and if not, I can quote. Usually, I source it, I put a link to it, and people can so and say yes, but these people calculate badly which you know with statistics is very easy to do but before that you checked a number and then when you know you reported something verbatim uh, and if you were especially for a foreign reporter you were sent on a story and you spent a bit of time you usually spent more time on a story uh, there's a moment when what you eventually write has the truth of the story and the facts and you might be getting one or two details wrong you probably will, but if you, so you've talked with enough people to get the general mood about the story, which is massively important, which is why you have to send reporters someplace. And the idea that they're all going to do in front of the screen is a complete disaster. Um, you, you get the differences, people will express them. People do not always know what they're saying, what is interesting in what they're saying. But if you have enough time with them, they will say something you think that's a really interesting thing. That is telling me so much about what's happening in this place, and and they don't even they're not aware of it because they're used to it. So the the when you say you can click on something and you don't know what it refers to, that is something that you encounter. This part of the great sort of interesting things in life, and that is something that you encounter on both sides of you know of of, of the media, the people producing the media and the people using the media. And very often now, especially since you've got all those comments below the line, you it feeds back and it feeds off one another. Uh, it's. Um, I mean, it's part of the business. It is actually a, a profession that what we do. It's a um, after a bit, you get a bit skilled to it, and you and and, and you make it work. Well, I I, I was inter I'm interested to hear from you a little bit more explicitly the the differences that you've had to operate in order to stay at the head of the game. Because when you started, as you said, it was very romantic, and or you see, could be well, more romantic. You could say more romantic. Sometimes. Sorry. You know, of course, fact checking still uh, was naturally supremely important, but you also mentioned that we have less time because the the notion of of a one hour, a one day press is gone. We are sort of all time twenty four seven press at all times, and there's less deadline notions unless you're still a magazine or a printed newspaper. So I'm, I'm wondering to what extent you feel you've had to adapt with, for example, notions of time notions of feedback from readers and of course the internet in general 
I think it's like swimming in the ocean. I mean, you know, you find yourself and you deal with whatever it is that they throw at you. In many ways, there are so many things that are so easier to do. I mean, I remember my first piece for the Sunday Times. They rang me up. I, I you know, I, I'd sort of been begging for a bit to work for them. And I get this call and they say, can you do this piece for the day after tomorrow? And it was about the Frères Villot, who were four uh, northern France asset strippers who bought uh, ailing or bankrupt, mostly textile companies, and then sold off the assets and, and made quite a fortune. It was rather interesting. Uh, and after a bit, that uh, you know, it, it went pear-shaped because they tried to operate some of the factories. The stuff oh. just stripped unsentimentally, that went fine. Uh, but anyway, they, they had in, in mind to become sort of industrialists, and that was not so good. But um, I had to go and spend, you know, a full afternoon at the paper, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the cuttings library, which the Americans call a morgue, which I always found funny. And, you know, but reading that high of cuttings that were in, in you know, in, in, in various places. And uh, I was lucky in that I rang up and I said, I'm doing this for the Sunday Times of London. And they said, fine, come. I would not have been helped if I'd been a competitor, possibly. But anyway, I got access to this and I was I was very keen on. And once you read all that stuff and you take notes because you can Xerox some of it, but it takes forever. You then have to meet people. You find names. You ring up those people again. You said you, you said this to this paper, and this is the way it happened. And so, all of this. I mean, the work that took me two three days, I could compress now with access to the internet, with the fact that I can I can send several emails at the same time, etc. Uh, that takes me a day, and that's not you know there's there's no sort of you know production sort of part that's lost. It's the same work, but it's speed it up by new technology. So that's a very great asset and, and we like it. We, we I mean, I remember when we still had uh, microfiche, I don't know how you say this in, in English, micro, you know, it was- it Oh was, yeah, mm -hmm. microfilm. Well, microfilm, you had lots of archives that were all microfilm and you had those big machines and you had to sort of move about. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly And one of the bits, and what I liked of course with the paper at Ketting's Library, you you got actual pages of newspaper. They, you know, all of this was in folders, etc. And you got, you know, you look at those pages. You could see the layout of the page. The layout of a page, a, a magazine or newspaper, is telling you what the editor wants you to read, what the editor thinks. Okay, this is really something that has to jump in their face first, which is something that is completely lost on the internet. You can see what part of the paper is gone. All of this is gone. All the paper, when it's been digitized, has disappeared. You have to go to the British Library or some such place to see it. And that is not going to exist anymore. And I remember I started off in France at François, which was an ailing, a daily newspaper, but had been the sort of great French newspaper of the 50s and 60s, and, you know, with a circulation of over a million, which in France is huge. And, and they had great reporters, and they, they sent people around the globe. And, and the Cuttings Library was a place of wonder. I loved working there partly because of the library. And it got, you know, I hope it got sold to someone, but it's possible it just got destroyed. Uh, and that told you so many things because you had the context. And I, I can think of doing a piece about concierge in Paris, the ladies usually, but sometimes men or a couple. And they, you know, they're at the, uh, the ground floor of your building and they, 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 they you know, they, they, they know about the building, they, they keep it clean, they get the mail and, uh, and they have been in the past police informers uh, from Joseph Fouché, Napoleon's um, uh, Home Secretary, Minister of Police, was keen on having the concierge inform on the people in the buildings. And I think the police always come and talk to the concierge and ask, well, what that person like? You know, is he keeping himself very quiet and his neighbors like him? In which case he might be cooking up something in his flat. But uh, that piece and the way it was treated in newspapers over the years, you had the facts, you know, you would have the facts on the internet. You had no clue of what a kind of issue, what kind of page it was. It was telling you so much stuff. It is also stuff for historians, which is, uh, we've lost that. And then you, you go out and you speak to people. And nowadays you can Zoom to people. Nowadays, you, you know, calling is always disruptive. There were secretaries, screening calls of people. All of this took time. There was also this feeling of, 
uh, I'm not going to give you, you know, a piece of my mind straight away. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it was in, in Britain. In America, you could speak. I've been a reporter in America. It was such a green place. You ring up people and they say, well, just come over. Yeah, we'll find people for you. Great. Uh, not French. Uh, possibly not British. I mean, there's a whole sort of notion of an establishment at every level that would not move or jump for you. And it took time and a bit of cunning. And the cunning could be amusing, but it also took time from you. So Female guile? Female was, guile? What? Female guile. <laughs> uh, it was. It's always useful, and I, I've never had any kind of real problem. I mean, once or twice, I've had politicians getting fresh, and one who greeted me and said, "Bonjour, mon petit lapin." Hello, my little oh rabbit. Said, hmm. "I'm not your little rabbit." I was 23 and a bit shocked, but you know, yeah, essentially, you. it didn't threaten my job. The guy was looking hurt. Uh, she fights back, you know, the rabbit that's got teeth. But no, I've, I've had no bad experiences. But certainly you go to someone, especially when you actually do not know much about it, but they've thrown you at it. And it was immensely helpful to say, look, I'm not, I don't understand. Can you please tell me again? And it works much better when you're 22 and you look like you really would like to do it better. Um, it's, uh, you know, why not? Why not? I, it's, yeah. uh, uh, because you now, come, you, you now come with a reputation, which is what I'd like to... Uh, sort of leave, leave start talking about right now is that you have developed a, a strong reputation you're you're known for having strong opinion and uh notably all, all the work on the ukraine but you know over the, over time you, you've been identified as someone who has a strong opinion and and therefore you must also face a lot of flack um there's there's uh it, it must be difficult at times managing the kind of feedback that obviously you get good feedback, but also you get people fighting and saying, oh, you're wrong about this and that. I was wondering, because that's a new thing as well. In the old days, the, the the interaction between journalist and reader was not quite as immediate and, and, and totally visible. So how do you manage that portion of your career? You're not talking about sources. You're not talking about people I no. interview. You're talking about no. readers. Yes. Well, I mean, if they are nice and, you know, usually if they don't make spelling mistakes and they look like they can articulate something, uh, we get talking and most of the time it gets very interesting. So I have no worries about that. And when they're really unpleasant, when they insult me or when they, they can't string two words together, I block them on Twitter because life is too short. Uh, but, you know, uh, but no, I, I, I make a point to try and sort of keep uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, my brain sort of you know, moving in, in, in sort of unexpected directions by speaking with people with whom I disagree as long as they they come to by their opinions um you know in a sort of honest sort of way in which case like I'm very happy to sort of talk with with these people and it's 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 part of the business uh I'm not that well known I mean you know people will see my face and say do I know you which is entirely different from oh you you know you you, you do the you do the the the, the uh, uh, the news at uh, at eight in, in Paris. It's it's a very different thing. Right now, you know, the other thing is, do, does it hamper my way, my my possibility for me to work? No. The other thing is that most people think when they say journalism, they think about television. Television exists, but quite honestly, the hot part of journalism is writing. It's not television. Yeah. So and and um, I'm, I'm not I'm not too I'm not too worried about this bit. It's. Uh, it's it's you know, as I said, really unpleasant words. I've had once, you know, horrible threats, and that you you tell the police, uh, and it was very specific. And it was after a piece I'd, I'd well, after it was a piece that I'd written in the uh, in the Telegraph. After I'd signed a letter which became known as the Catherine Deneuve letter, saying, "Look, you know, there's a difference between rape and the guy trying it on, and uh, the complexity of life sort of should allow for a guy trying it on." God, I had been you know, and we had been traitors to the sisterhood, and and the you know, those supposedly sort of, you know, people, women trying and uh, women's advocates trying to to protect women sort of, you know, threaten you with rape with the best of them. So uh, I sort of figured that that, would, that made a second piece. With So, you know, excellent for giving me subjects. But it was deeply unpleasant at times. And I, 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 I listed the names and I gave them to the police. Because, I mean, the old days. Well, they um, were true names, which was rare. Right, right, right. <laughs> as opposed to sort of an anonymous. Um, in the old days, I mean, as I remember it, for having hung out with many journalists, we didn't, they didn't even read the reader's stuff that wasn't, there wasn't qualified, uh, you know, I am a journalist, I'm above this, I know this stuff. And then through, uh, I talked with my my friend Jennifer at the New York Times about how they were in, 
coaxed as journalists into reading what the the readers were writing and of course you know there's a lot of bollocks in there um, managing what's interesting or not there's so much in there but anyway it, i think it's um it's relevant that you as a human being uh, are also you know you're fighting for your cause your subjects and it's it's sad how you know, so often on the internet they feel that they have the right to say however they want with poor spelling mistakes and hide behind anonymity. It's uh, I think it, it's it's a terrible thing. I, I I was on in this on the internet very early. I was on the internet from the from the from the early nineties, and and uh, you had in various things like CompuServe, so forums and Usenet and all that. You had what was known as flame wars, and you know until you've seen people argue about Star Trek and become really offensive, you've not lived. And therefore, when it got to the point when the thing percolated down to politics, I thought, yeah, well, I've seen this before. I'm not I'm not too fast. I think what you've described, I'm a journalist and I'm not listening to the public is something that always struck me because uh, the public expresses, you know, in ways that are not ours, but we hopefully have spent some time owning what we are managed to do to be efficient and understandable, but they are expressing real things. Uh, and it's not just the trolls. I mean, the trolls are anecdotal. There's lots of them, or they're very vocal, but it's not. But the public actually has something to say to you. And I went, I, I always spent time uh, on stories. And I've always spent, you know, when, when you met people who are not the main stars. It's always very interesting to talk to them. It's also interesting to get the the reactions to 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 because people live something and they 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 experience it and they look at what you've written and you come there and you alight and you you do your best, but you're not going to see things the same way as they are. And sometimes it's good that you see it differently. But I was very wary and not very happy to be quite honest to work with uh, sometimes people, usually men but some women, but usually men, sort of all saying, oh, I'm a journalist, I'm not going to listen to these people. Uh, I'm going to quote something else, which is something that Marcel Ophuse, the great documentary maker, told me once, and he said that he was in his teens living in Santa Monica in in, in, in Los Angeles, when his father was working in Hollywood during the war, you had all those immigrant German and Austrian directors, and there was this sort of German-speaking colony, and one of the German-speaking colony was Bertolt Brecht, the great uh, playwright. Um, and Bertolt Brecht once took up Marcel and he said, you know, you want to write? And I says, yes. And he said, I'll give you a tip. You know, when you when you take the bus, and this is a hallowed time when I was still was public transport in Los Angeles, but let's not go into this. And he said, always have a notebook, always, you know, listen to what people are saying in their conversations, take it down. You will never manage to write, invent something as fresh as what people say, so take it. And it is a lesson on, on writing plays and on, on fiction writing uh, from life. But there's always something that people are going to say that you've never heard about, and it's really worth it. Now, do I get this in the comments under our stories? Not very often, but it's uh, once or twice, there was somebody on Twitter when we, we, we got into a spat, and I knew her name. And she's a lady, she is a lady of a certain age and a French philosopher. And I knew who she was. And I'd read her years ago in Le Nouvel Observateur. And I thought, so I sent her a private message and I said, look, we're sort of having this big fight, but I, we should meet. We should have tea. So we went and had tea and we've become friends. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. What, you, you mentioned Twitter, and I think it would be important probably to talk about Twitter because obviously it's going through change and uh, we don't know everything. Musk is still there. Maybe he steps down. Maybe he doesn't. What is your read on Twitter these days? Oof. I mean, I think Twitter, first of all, Twitter is a fantastic resource. Uh, forget about you know all the all the, all the uh, uh, fighting on Twitter. Uh, you've got a number of people reporting and sort of you know on the ground in difficult places in places like Baluchistan that nobody's talking about and which where you have constant uh, war persecution, kidnapping of women, kidnapping of children, uh, execution of people by the Pakistani army, and that's really something that I would never have heard about because it doesn't make the grade to go into a newspaper because a newspaper is a, you know, you have a page and the page is a container and you can't put more peas in, in, in a container that your container can take peas and nobody knows where Baluchistan is. 
Very sad, but very true. Uh, lots of places. You have the Ukraine war, which in so many ways, I mean, everybody has got a phone. The young Russian kids who are stuffed in, in a wet trench being bombed by the Ukrainians with but no equipment, sort of, you know, uh, no ammunition, no shoes sometimes. And and they and they they make videos and they send the videos to their families and we get the videos and they're intercepted by people. And you get the reality in ways that we never got that before. And all of this ends up on Twitter. You've got defense experts on Twitter who have long threads and the threads are absolutely brilliant. And honestly, I mean, you know, these are people I, I haven't been able to sort of have as teachers at university, but I get the condensed work that they do uh, on Twitter. So I, you know, I, I'm really sort of, well, I want Twitter to keep going because it is extraordinary. On the other side, you've got, you know, the complete madness of uh, an overgrown kid with ADHD who is Elon Musk, and right now who has managed to sort of, you know, slash value uh, from both his own holdings and Twitter in a remarkable way. Now, if I understand correctly, and you probably know more than I do about this, um, he's the main shareholder of Twitter, but he's not the majority shareholder in Twitter. I'm not sure. But I think that's right. He's got enough invest, and because also, like every every person who got rich, they invest other people's money. So at one stage, somebody is going to say, "Look, you know, uh, we are losing money, and we don't like losing money, and you know, let's run this in a professional way." Uh, and you will get stuff, and you can always go, and your account will be followed by a million people because that's the way it is. But you know, arrêtons arrêtons les bêtises. And I suspect that's going to happen one day. In which case, uh. Tesla apparently is also undergoing sort of problems. All of this has a happen a way of of sort of uh, suddenly you've got all those explosions. You've got something triggering them, and then they go all over the place. That you know uh, uh, the seven angry men are going to they're going to take over the fort, and suddenly everything it happens at the same time. And the whole place explodes. I think Musk is close to a point where people are going to say, "Look, you can't." Um, we like you very much, and you're the boss, and don't do it because that thing is becoming worthless, and we put money in it. Um, and you know, don't be Sam Bankman Fried. You will not like being Sam Bankman Fried. So please, you know, give it smart up. What smarten up? Yeah, smarten up. Yeah, and and he is very smart. He's also uh, nobody has said no to him in a long time, and he's he's got genius, obviously. And and uh, somebody has got to bring him back to the principle of reality, uh, and we'll see how that goes. And I'm you know I'm crossing fingers because lots of people said, oh, I'm going to that. Uh, uh, different sort of social media thing. And there was uh, Mastodon and there was the Post and all that. And they really, I mean, it takes a long time to build the mass of what is on Twitter. Uh, the technology, actually, we've seen how slow the other things are. And so the technology is pretty good too. But Twitter has worked about 10 years on, on really sort of getting something that is very special and just crossing fingers that it keeps going on. I, I I agree with you. I'm a big fan of the efficiencies. If you know, start knowing how to use hashtags and lists to to get the information you need. It's it's absolutely just remarkable. Getting the, just finding people, finding the post, finding the quotes. I mean, Mastodon, it's different servers. It's a bit like the Tor browser, you know, and it's so decentralized that if you know somebody's handle, but you don't know which server they're on, you can't find them. I mean, goodbye, Mastodon. Mm -hmm. I have no time for it. Mm. So um, last question for you, Anne Elizabeth, for someone who's listening to this, who is maybe starting off as a journalist or aspires to be a journalist, what advice would you give them? It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy for all sorts of reasons. And some reasons are new and some reasons have always existed. And the new reasons is that by and large, it's getting more and more difficult to get paid for stuff you write. There's in the past 10, 15 years, you've had the rise of the freelance foreign correspondence, which is something that is morally wrong. And which is basically you've got young and not, you know, people that that you know rarely over 45, but uh they get sent to places where they might get shot. Uh, and they do not have the protection of having a job, having a company, having sometimes a union, having the equipment, having all the things that, you know, are, I think, necessary if you're sent out somewhere uh, where your life is in danger. Uh, and newspapers have no moral problem with that. And the day rate that they pay those reporters is 
under hundred pounds. I mean, it is sometimes Peanuts. it's horrible. Uh, same thing with photographers, uh, and and quite honestly, uh, the the situation nowadays. Uh, I have lots of things against a settled establishment because I think it be, become, makes you stale and lazy. But uh, the the sort of uberization of the of the profession of journalism, uh, I can write opinion pieces for other people in the Telegraph, and you know I don't mind. Uh, but uh, I would certainly not go and cover a war as a freelance. I know some people have done a great deal of fast because it's you know nobody protects you. Nobody is going, you, you, you represent a newspaper, the editor of the newspaper is going to go to the uh, foreign office or the Ministère des Affaires étrangères, and they will get tons of pushback saying your journalist was imprudent or something. We were not really interested, but it's a hassle. But still, you have an existence. You're a freelance. You could be anything. In a country like Iran, you could be executed or used as a hostage for months and months and months so that you know public opinion and pressure uh, uh, sort of wins those strange uh, communication battles that they like in Iran. So um, that's, you know, that's something to take into consideration. Uh, and, and so it's become much more dangerous for journalists. Uh, and I would say that in general, uh, for all sorts of reasons, and because people do not know the difference between reporters, opinion journalists, editors, television, written press, they don't, there's a complete sort of misunderstanding of what journalists are. And they all think they are the presenters that they see on TV. Um, and and it makes life for young people who start, and they are they've got bosses who are hardly bosses and pay them badly, and they've got uh, uh, sort of preconceptions about what kind of business they're in that are completely false. Um, having said all that, you know you meet young people and you think, oh yeah, that one is you know that one's got it. They will they will be fine. They will be excellent, and they they are. got the niac. Oh, well, yeah, that's what the French say, but it's a combination of things. It's, it's not just lagnac, you know, is the French expression to say they've got, you know, they've got the guts to sort of go at it and not let go, which, you know, you're basically a truffle dog with teeth, but they've also got the nose and, and the good ones, they see things and, and it crops into the piece and the piece, you know, sings alive and, and that's what you want. All right. Just the last question, because you mentioned, uh, obviously, working for press. If you're coming into the business, uh, don't go uh, and do any foreign correspondence without being associated with it. Which are, are the the media that are most impressive to you today that amongst the new ones that have cropped up? Yeah, I mean, Unheard, I'm very happy to write for Unheard because it's got a, you know, it's it's really, I mean, you could, it is mostly opinion pieces, but they're well-informed opinion pieces and they are wonderful, good pieces of writing. And it's nice writing for them because they are, you know, they're, they're nimble. I mean, I, but I mean, but I, I, I draw such a blank uh, when when people ask me this, but yes, I mean I would recommend Unheard uh, because it's good. But there are lots of places you've got people I mean, very often it hangs from an editor. When before she was at Unheard, Sally Chatterton, the editor of Unheard, was well to begin with. She was at the Telegraph, where she was comment editor. She was wonderful, and then she left, and then she went to do a website called CapX, which is was the sort of news and and, and opinion. Uh, internet arm of the Center for Policy Studies, the think tank. And when she was editor, she made it into a thing of beauty that sang because the stories, it was fun. And then I think um, the uh, she left, for, uh, she was posed by Unheard, and by that time, the, the Center for Policy Studies decided that uh, news reporting and news writing is expensive, which is perfectly is. And so they, they I mean, they didn't even divide by two. Uh, they, they, I mean, they, they absolutely sort of shrunk uh, what they paid to journalists, and you, uh, and 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 they, there was one person left minding the store, and essentially, it's you know they do their best, and they're lovely to work with, but uh, they've become a small outfit because they didn't have the means to be a bigger outfit, and and if you're going to spend sort of you know a week working on something, you do not want to be paid 150 quid. Uh, nobody does. Uh, so it's a combination of things, but. Uh, I, every now and then I find so. I mean, I feel very, I was not prepared for this. And I, I I read stuff and I think this is fantastic. And I send it to people and I see stuff in, in the critic and I see, I see stuff, you know, in the Atlantic, which is not exactly new. I see stuff in this wonderful online Jewish magazine in America called Tablet, 
boy, has that got good writing in it. I mean, it is nice. It's beautiful. It's got a literary side to it. I love Tablet. It's I mean, um, it, it is called Tablet, and I think the Tablet is a Catholic one, which is also good, but more old-fashioned. Uh, I mean, you have all sorts of things, uh, and and I can't think of them. The one thing about the internet is that it has made us all into sort of you know, like like birds with grain on the on the ground. You know, we go and pick 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 and look at things, and we don't even know where it is that we've read something because we have become sort of you know spot consumers of everything and every mm. news. And you used to be you know. In, when I lived in New York, you know, 30 years ago, I had, you know, when on my, on my, on, because it was the wonderful thing about New York, is I'd open the door in the morning, bleary eyed before coffee, grab my New York Times and sort of go to the kitchen and make myself a nice coffee and read the New York Times and I couldn't live without it. And most people had a variation of that routine and they couldn't live without it. And nowadays, the only newspaper that, there are two publications that I can't live without, but they, one is a weekly and one is a fortnightly. And they're not online, and, and they are very special. One is the Canard Enchaîné, which is the French investigative and comic sort of political newspaper, very old, created in 1917. And the other one is the equivalent in America, it's private eye. In Britain, it's private eye. It's a fortnightly, and it's got fantastic sort of, you know, investigations. And, and gossip and fun. And, and that is something that I need to sort of sit over my coffee with. But mm. that's about it. And Elizabeth, well, uh, sorry for jumping you on that, but uh, you've given a lot of great names. I'll be listing all of those in the show notes. Um, how can anybody follow you? Where, where do you... On Twitter. It's very easy. My Twitter handle is my last name, Mute. M-O-U-T-E-T. I, I do really, I mean, I have an Instagram where I put pictures I take when I'm on holiday or, you know, when the fancy takes me. It is not organized. It is, it's just something I do from time. Oh, that's a nice picture to take. I've got my telephone stolen and therefore I'm buying myself a new phone and presumably it will come with a decent camera and probably I'll have more stuff on my Instagram, but no, none of it is going to be calculated. So no, I'd say Twitter. Sorry, your iPhone was stolen. I had it happen to me. It's almost almost and- like half your life is taken from you if you don't have a phone anymore these days yep and elizabeth too yeah i see smart so thank you so much i have a cheap phone and my my cheap phone is for when the other one breaks down or gets stolen and then i got my cheap phone stolen so which is piece of luck it leaves me to say thank you very much merci beaucoup and elizabeth thanks for having listened to this episode of the minter dialogue podcast if you like the show would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on interdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. Stephanie Singer, a convinced man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust is a Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate I'm a convinced man, competition's innate A convinced man, in the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle, but 
succeed Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me Precipitating the danger to feel free Trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man here in these confines A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man admit to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.